Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, great job this morning. The rocks did not have to cry out. You guys praised and worshipped the Lord like, like he deserved, and so the, the rocks were allowed to uh, remain silent one more day. You want to hear a little bit more about that? It's kind of from last week's sermon. You can look uh, on the Lessons from First Naz, First Naz podcast on iTunes, or you can check it out on the, uh, on the church website. Um, second thing, uh, I don't, I don't know what is the appropriate way to, um, to talk or to feel about it, only to say this. Um, I think, I think the most beloved pastor in this church's history, at least one of them, uh, was a man named Paul Barber Sr. And, uh, Paul, uh, went to be with Jesus this morning after a struggle with Parkinson's. And uh, they thought he was going to pass Monday a week ago, but he held on till Easter Sunday. And at about 4.30 this morning, as the poet said, he slipped the surly bonds of earth. And uh, Denise called me, his daughter, and uh, just a few minutes before five and said, Cliff, my daddy went to be with Jesus. And uh, I think it's altogether fitting to talk about that today because... Paul is one who preached from this pulpit powerfully the truth of the gospel. Many, many people came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior through Paul's ministry. Many of you were discipled into maturity under Paul's ministry. His funeral will be uh, Tuesday at 10.30 in the morning at Spokane First Church of the Nazarene. If you need uh, directions, you can call the office tomorrow. But uh, be praying for his wife, Marie, and for the family, though they know he is with Christ and that he's no longer suffering. That guy leaves a big hole, a really big hole in the lives of the people who knew him and loved him. And the kingdom of Jesus on earth has suffered loss. And the kingdom of Jesus in heaven has grown stronger today. And so um, the one who proclaimed the power of the resurrection... Is experiencing it this morning. Glory to the name of God. When I was just six years old, uh, that, was, that was 40 years ago now, uh, a rock band formed at a Christian high school in Dublin, Ireland, something that has happened thousands and thousands of times down through history. Teenage kids who thought they were musicians getting together and making a lot more racket than they do anything that might actually be appreciated as music. These guys, however, stuck with it for a few years, a few decades, and in fact, they're still touring today and not making the casino and uh, state fair circuit. These guys are, are still selling out stadiums all around the world. In fact, in one of their most recent tours, uh, they, they sold 7.2 million tickets. They're, they're the hottest act on the planet $736 million they earned in one tour. That's right, three quarters of a billion dollars. A band called U2. Their front man, Bono, is a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ and a very uh, outspoken activist. If he sees something in this world that he thinks is unjust and needs attention, that guy puts his personal fortune and, um, and, and his mouth and his feet to work addressing it. When I was a teenager, that, that band was, uh, was, was, you know, learning their chops and had kind of emerged as this kind of sub-punk 
group, but you know, when I was 17, 1987, they came out with uh, an album that just rocketed them to mainstream success. It was called Joshua Tree. And uh, the second hit off of that album really became an anthem for my generation. And, and you heard it in the movie that we just watched, but let me read for you the lyrics again. Listen to this. I have climbed the highest mountains. I've run through the fields only to be with you. Only to be with you. I have run. I have crawled. I've scaled these city walls. These city walls only to be with you. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've kissed honey lips. Felt the healing in her fingertips. It burned like fire. This burning desire. I've spoke with the tongue of angels. I've held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night. I was cold as a stone, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. But yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. Oh, my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Now, I certainly am not the first person to state that there is a universal hunger in the hearts of men and women and teens and children, but it is true. People will search and experiment until they find something that will satisfy the hunger of their hearts. Many times we find something that seems to satisfy it or that comes close enough, and what we find out in the end is that it only works for a very short while, a temporary fix. U2's lyrics chronicle that search as it it makes its way through, oh, outdoor pursuits and the excitement of the city and love and lust and religion. And yet Bono kept singing and all of my generation with him and a couple more since then, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Many of my friends still sing that song, and especially that repeated chorus with conviction. Because here at Midlife, still haven't found what we're looking for. I think every human being knows what they're really looking for. I think that, that in our hearts, there is just this, this homing device that says, I'll know what it is when I see it. I think we have a hard time describing it. So some people say they're looking for love, and some people say they're looking for peace, and some people say they're looking for joy, and some for meaning or purpose. We have a hard time describing it, but there's this this thing in us that says, I'll know it when I see it, and I just haven't seen it yet, so I'm going to keep looking. And I think the New Testament has a word that, that was used by its authors fairly consistently, to describe this thing that we're looking for. And the word that the New Testament authors used is life. You might think of it as real life. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that I think everybody knows what they're looking for, really. But what we have discovered is that in this life, it is not enough to know what you're looking for. Lots of people, everybody knows what they're looking for. And they keep looking and looking and looking. In this life, it's not enough to know what you're looking for. You have to know the right place to look. 
Life's big secret isn't knowing what to look for. It's knowing where to find it. you got to look in the right place. Or you will look all of your life and still come up empty. The Bible's New Testament begins with four different stories of the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus. And those stories are mostly similar. Uh, They overlap quite a bit. But there's enough difference there for us to be able to tell that some of the authors didn't exactly see it the same way. and, And they weren't simply copying off of one another's papers trying to get their story straight. Since January, our congregation has been working our way through the study of Luke's version of the life of Jesus and aiming toward this Sunday, Easter, when when the gospel and the story of Jesus comes to its pinnacle. Here's the big moment. You can take a look at it in just a moment, but I want to catch you up on our reading first, though, if you haven't been able to be with us. Luke began his book by stating his purpose for writing it. There were already probably two other uh, versions of the life of Jesus that were circulating. Paul said, yeah, or Luke said, eh, it's not working for me. I, I, need, I need to be certain. I need to do a little more research. I need to fill in the details. And then he wrote to his friend Theophilus, I'm doing this for you so that even though you believe, you have this, this, this kind of faith, I want to help you make it more certain. This thing that becomes a firm foundation for you to stand on, that brings some stability and some power to your life. Instead of a hope-so kind of a faith, and I know-so kind of faith. Maybe you're like Luke's friend, and, and you believe that Jesus lived and did some pretty incredible things that would seem to indicate that he was something more than a man, and and that he may have actually been God, but still haven't found what you're looking for. Well, Luke goes on to tell the amazing story of of Jesus' life and of his teaching and of his fights with the religious aristocracy and the power mongers, and they always would tell about his compassion toward everybody else except for the religious aristocracy. Those folks who are the religious leaders and um, control mongers, he went after them every single time. Compassion for everybody else. Um, makes me a little nervous being, you know, one of the, I don't know, guys Jesus tended to aim at. But Luke also tells us repeatedly in his account that Jesus had a sense all along that he had a meeting with destiny. He kept telling his first followers that he was going to be betrayed by a friend and then handed over to his enemies and crucified. And of course, nobody wants to hear anybody talk like that. So Jesus' friends told him to be quiet and hushed him up and largely ignored what he said. And because of it, they never really seemed to hear what he tacked on to the end of those warnings. He had told them that he would come back from the dead and actually live again. From where we sit, we think, well, that would be kind of hard to ignore. But I assure you, it's even harder to pull off. Wow, that one just landed like that. Okay, think about it just a little bit. It's kind of a hard uh, statement to ignore. I'm going to get killed, but don't worry, I'll be fine. I'll be back by Tuesday. Harder yet to pull off. It doesn't happen. It hadn't happened. It can't happen. But it did. And Luke, this one who who took such special care to 
to check out the details, records for us the story of Jesus coming back from the dead. A rich man who considered himself one of Jesus' followers laid his body in a tomb that the man had purchased for himself. That's where we take up our reading today. Would you stand with me, please, in demonstrating respect for God and his word as we read it? Lord, it's your spirit who does justice to the scriptures, meaning that you're the one who uses them to breathe life into our spirits. And I pray you'd do it for me again today and you'd do it for these folks that are here to listen. Lord, this could either just be the discharging of religious duties, we'll sit through a sermon, or your Holy Spirit can make the rounds today and actually turn on the lights in our heads and our hearts and you could speak to us. Lord, are there some people here today that you have a special word for? Are there some people here today that you're just delighted you're going to get to speak to? Speak in ways that they can clearly understand you. Help me to do the same, I pray in your name. Amen. Luke writes these words, At the crack of dawn on Sunday, the women came to the tomb carrying the burial spices they had prepared. They found the entrance stone rolled back from the tomb, so they walked in. But once inside, they couldn't find the body of the master Jesus. They were puzzled, wondering what to make of this. Then, out of nowhere, it seemed, two men, light cascading over them, stood there. The women were awestruck and bowed down in worship. But the men said, why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? He's not here, but raised up. Remember how he told you when you were still back in Galilee that he had to be handed over to sinners, be killed on a cross, and in three days rise up? Then they remembered Jesus' words. So they left the tomb and broke the news of all this to the eleven and the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them kept telling these things to the apostles. But the apostles didn't believe a word of it thought they were making it all up. But Peter jumped to his feet, ran to the tomb. He stopped to look in and saw a few grave clothes. That's all. And he walked away puzzled, shaking his head. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, in the video that you saw earlier, I walked into three businesses here in town to try to buy something that they didn't sell. I said I was looking for gasoline, but I was shopping at a restaurant, a pharmacy, and a paint store. Of course, the whole thing was staged, and, you know, we got permission, so those people weren't uh, in trouble with their bosses and all of that, and they played along with me. Uh, But it depicted the problem of knowing just exactly what you want, but looking for it in the wrong places. No matter how you ask, no matter how many times you ask, and no matter how desperate you really are, if they don't have it, they won't sell it to you. It's just the way that it works. It's, It's not that it's improper to ask for gasoline at a restaurant. It's just that you can't get it there. There's no way for them to deliver what you're looking for. 
Well, in the story that we just read, a a group of women who were followers of Jesus had gone to his tomb with the expectation of finding his corpse so that they could, you know, do funeral stuff, give it a a decent burial, because that matter hadn't been properly taken care of a couple days before when he was crucified. And as I read that passage again this week, a passage that's so familiar to me, I was struck by the words of the angels in this story. Why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? If you're more familiar with some of the older translations of Scripture, what's rattling through your head right now is, why do you seek the living among the dead? Well, since we know how the story goes, it's a perfectly good question, but if you were one of the gals on the scene, it had to confuse you a little bit because they weren't looking for a living one. They went there, not to find a living Jesus. They went there to find a dead Jesus. They'd seen him die. They knew where he was put. They went to the cemetery for a dead guy. Had to bother them when they got to the tomb and saw that it was already opened because grave robbing was not an altogether uncommon thing in that day. And if the stone was rolled away, uh, maybe somebody had desecrated the grave. But they walked in, and what they saw when they got in there was perhaps more alarming because typically grave robbers just take valuable things like maybe some clothes or some jewelry, but this time they go in and the body's gone and the clothes are left there? It seemed all the more that there was some grave robbing that had taken place, but of a kind they couldn't explain. Jesus' body was gone, missing, out of there. And that's when the angels showed up and and told them that they were looking for the wrong thing and they were looking in the wrong place. The women were looking for Jesus' corpse, for his dead body, but Jesus had been resurrected by God the Father, so if they were looking for a dead guy, they were looking for the wrong thing. Cemetery. Right place to look for a dead guy, but if you're looking for someone who's living, cemetery is the last place you ought to check. It's like trying to buy gasoline at a pharmacy. Looking for the living among the dead is a low probability venture. You know what you find in a cemetery? Dead guys, dead guys' stuff, caskets, dead flowers that are wilting, old plastic ones that should have been, you know pitched a while back. At the very best, when you go to a cemetery, you find some memories that might be pleasant to you, but for the most part, it's just death there. And I think the reason that so many of us still haven't found what we're looking for is that we've been looking in the wrong places. We all want real life, however you describe it, that's what we're talking about, real life on the inside, that deeply satisfying sort of life that just wells up inside of us, and we're looking for this renewable source of it. But we've been looking for it in things that can never deliver it. I spoke with someone this week whose dream had been to own their own home. I remember they were so excited about it. They're thankful for it now, but it also, homeowners, can I get a word of testimony? It's a drain and a strain and a financial pressure. You get it paid off, guess what? Now you got to fix stuff. It's all 30 years old, right? Yeah. You know what they found? They found some gratitude, but they also found that it doesn't produce life just doesn't deliver the goods on the inside. I talked with a young couple this week who were getting married. 
They told me about a series of three divorces in their families. People who thought they had found the secret to happiness, secret to life, the real thing. One by one by one, those marriages dissolved. Hmm. Marriage, even a handful of them, doesn't add up to life. Homes, marriages, families, it's the American dream, right? Then why do so many of us end up grabbing several of each? They're not producing what it is that we're really looking for. We, we still haven't found what we're looking for. And it's because we've been looking in the wrong place. One of Jesus' closest friends uh, fancied himself to be a little bit of a philosopher. He was actually a commercial fisherman, but apparently he read a lot and considered himself a philosopher. He uh, had read about an idea among the Greek philosophers that really turned his crank. And the idea was that there was this god or gods who were fully alive. I mean, in in the ultimate spiritual sense, that the the essence of life itself, that that was the god and, and that God wanted people to experience what he gets to experience and has for all of eternity. Essential, real, true, pure, powerful, never-ending life. And so this God, wanting uh, not, not, not to deliver the real goods and not some shoddy substitute or knock-off human watered-down version of it, had this idea that he would take part of his own life and put it into the humans, into each one who wanted it. And the way that he would do this is he would just, he's so powerful, he could just speak the word, life. And, and all who wanted it would just, in hearing the word, experience the life. This Greek idea. Sounds kind of amazing, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great if it was just that easy? If whatever God wanted for you, he could just say it and bam, now you experience it perfectly. Well, this philosopher guy, friend of Jesus, happened to be named John. He got to know Jesus better than just about anyone else. And and he got to know Jesus well enough that he could tell Jesus was more than just another religious teacher. In fact, John believed Jesus to be the embodiment of the word, that philosopher thing, that that expression of the desire and the life of God that was going to come into everyone who who heard it and believed. Listen to what John wrote about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, that Word, And, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, so Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that's been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or even really understood it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Just so you know, different John. It's always been a pretty popular name. He's referring to a man who'd come to be known as John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So 
he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, now that's kind of tricky, isn't it? He made the world, and then came into the world, and when he came into it, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John could see what people want, that the the kind of life that can best be described as the life of God himself, real life, true life, essential life. John said that life was spoken by God the Father into this world and that Jesus kind of became the embodiment of it. He was that that, that life of God himself, that spoken word wrapped up in flesh and put in front of us in a way that we could understand. You want to know what the real life looks like, then just look at Jesus and see how he lived, and you'll see it. Check out this brief rundown of the life of Jesus, and you tell me if there isn't something in you that says, that's what I'm looking for. Here's the list. Jesus had a connection with God that got him through the most difficult times of his life with real peace. Peace, instead of fear or worry, owned and characterized Jesus. He went through hard stuff like you and me, There was always this, it's going to be okay thing that undergirded him and made him able to endure the hard stuff. Jesus had a compassion for people that made him want to help them, and he found great satisfaction in doing so. Instead of doing it as a duty, or instead of it seeming like an imposition, it seemed like Jesus found life and a deep sense of enjoyment in helping other people. Jesus was also fearless and aggressive in the face of injustice and worked to overcome it. He made a habit of looking at people with too much power and taking them down a few pegs and looking at the powerless and undervalued in their culture and speaking words of honor and truth to them. Jesus always managed to overcome temptation, so he lived without shame and without regrets. Jesus experienced a close-knit community with people who genuinely loved him and cared about him. Because of that, Jesus was willing to lay down his life for his friends. Isn't that the life that you want? Isn't that really what you've been looking for your whole life? To have a connection with God that gets you through the hard stuff? For something to change in your heart so that You end up loving serving people instead of having to? Wouldn't you like to be bold and fearless in the face of injustice and and, and change your world? Wouldn't you like to overcome temptation so that you could tell the truth when you say, no regrets, man? Wouldn't you like to experience a close-knit community with people that you knew loved you? Loved you enough that you'd say, I'd die for those people. Does that sound like the kind of life you've been looking for? I will tell you today, my friends, you can't find it in possessions. 
a newer, bigger, fancier house or an extra one or two for vacation purposes are not going to produce that for you. More money? Not going to do it. A position of greater influence and power is not going to produce life for you. You can't find it in sex, and you can't find it in mind-altering substances because both those things have a really short shelf life that just leaves you wanting more of them and distracted from your pursuit of real life. The women in the story we read couldn't find Jesus in the cemetery because you don't look for the living among the dead. You can't find real life by looking to the stuff of this world. Couldn't find Jesus, the living one, in the cemetery, and you can't find real life by digging around in things that are only going to lead to death. You can't find real life by, in, in Christ by looking to the stuff of this world. Real life is only found in relationship with God through faith in Jesus. John, John sort of put it like this. He said, in Jesus was life. And that life is shiny. It's easy to notice. It's easy to find. The light shines in the darkness, but for some reason, some people don't get it. They chase it, but are never able to run it down because they keep looking in the wrong places. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there something in the back of your head or in the center of your chest or in the pit of your gut that's moved a little bit by what you've heard today? I don't mean by the preacher or the preaching, but by the notion of life itself. Do you you think that maybe there's some chance that that might be the Spirit of God trying to get your attention today and trying to convince you to become a follower of Jesus by placing your faith in Jesus as the only one who can really connect you with God, the source of all life? If you are at all suspicious of what's happening in your head and heart this morning, that's what it is. It's the Spirit of God saying, you're on the right track. You're almost there. So I would encourage you this morning, act on it. Act on your hunch. Your whole life you've been looking for real life, but until today, you still hadn't found what you're looking for. But now you heard the message, and something deep in your head and in your heart is saying, I think, I think, I think it's right. I think this is it. I think you found what you're looking for. I have. I have experienced real life in Christ, and it's everything that I need and what I deeply want. I do not want to make this this message and this day about me, but I have to tell you my personal testimony here. The the calendar dates don't quite match up because Easter wanders all over the months of uh, March and April. But uh, last year, I was preparing for Easter, sitting at the foot of my sister's hospital bed in Cape Coral, Florida, she was in a coma. And I was writing my Easter sermon about the hope of the resurrection. I said, God, it better be true. 
And she passed away on Good Friday. And come Sunday morning, when the whole world would have given the preacher the pass to not be at church, my family and I got up and got dressed, and we made our way to uh, the closest church of the Nazarene there, where my little sister had worshipped for years. And it was hard for us to be there. It's big church with a a huge orchestra and a big drama that they presented that day. And and the place was just jammed full of Easter lilies that I'm really allergic to. (laughs) And uh, I got to blame all the tears on my allergies that day. But I sat there with with, with my entire family filling uh, a pew and a half there. And I found in the presence of God and his people... What I had found a number of other rough times in my life. That there is real life that gives hope and enough strength to get through the hardest stuff in life. And it's found only in relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. One year later, there's still some times when my heart is sad and I miss my kid sister. Doggone it. But to stand before you today as one who has experienced the comfort of God, the strength and the help of God, and in no other way. This is what I offer to you this morning, is a life that works. In this broken, messed up world, you can have a life that works through faith in Jesus Christ. My soul's real need is met, and I want yours to be too. So what's it take to get started? Uh, Just a brief conversation with God about your desire for life and your decision to trust him, to give it to you. You don't have to know how to pray, by the way. No prayer lessons, no classes on prayer, okay? It's just a conversation, an authentic one, between you and God where you tell him about the deep desire of your heart and that you're you're going to decide to trust him to deliver the goods. Would you like to kind of act on that today? I mean, you could go home with the idea floating in your head, but, but if you'd like to act on it today, Christians have, uh, over all of the 2,000 Christian years, one thing that we've, we've done again and again and again that the people of God always have in common is a, is a kind of a, a formalized ceremony of acting upon faith in Christ. And that's what these shiny plates are in front of me. They are uh, the tiniest helpings of unleavened bread and of grape juice. Jesus taught his first followers right before he was arrested and crucified. He he taught them to take this meal and, and and to breathe real meaning into it, where the bread comes to stand for the life, the, the, the body of Jesus that was horribly brutalized and then clinically killed, really dead. And his blood that was whipped and speared out of him. Well, gee, that doesn't seem very fun, Cliff. Fun, my friends, is not the point. 
Every meal that you ever eat in your life, um, something has to die, right? I mean, if you have meat, something, something died. If you have vegetables, yeah, you, you cut them off the stem, they died. And what you put in your body is something that's dead. And you do it with the great confidence that it will stay that way, right? And that your body will kind of speed up its... Uh, decomposition and all the dead stuff that you ate can then find its way to the cells and give you life for ah, another day or so. The people of God who eat this meal look at uh, the meal a little differently. We are we're not eating dead things. Wheat, yeah, the wheat had to die. The grapes got crushed. But what they, what they symbolize to us is a very lively Jesus. And when, when we eat this and when we drink this, it's, it's not just for our body's sustenance, but it's, it's this powerful reminder that the Jesus who died for us took the punishment for all human sin, making it possible for us to be forgiven and, and, and have a right relationship with God. That Christ has come back from the dead. He took a a new kind of life that's completely imperishable, and he says, that's the life that I'm going to give you. Not the one that I laid in the grave. The one that I took up, that's the life that I will give you. And these things symbolically go to work inside us. The Spirit of God himself goes to work inside of us. And the people of God have a life that is unlike anything else. It is characterized by joy. It is characterized by peace. It is characterized by a power for living differently than you could when you were betting on your own willpower and some days given up way too soon and you know it. The life of Jesus Christ made available to us. Communion teams are coming. In, uh, in our tradition, um, this is an inclusive thing. You don't have to have been baptized in this church to get to participate with us in the Lord's Supper. We simply ask that if you are going to participate with us, that you do so in faith. If, uh, if this is your first move in the direction of faith, fantastic! We think it's good for that. You don't have to, again, you don't have to have taken classes or courses or been confirmed or anything here for us to say, make, make the reach Make the grab. Go for the life that he is offering to you. We simply ask that if you do not share our faith, that you do not profane these elements and show disrespect to them. But we invite everyone to take one little step of faith in Jesus' direction by taking the bread and the juice. Hold it until everyone's been served, and then we will partake together.